Welcome to the Christchurch Manchester Theology Podcast. The CCM School of Theology meets monthly on Saturday mornings at Luther King House in Manchester. For more information about the training that we offer or about our church in Manchester, please visit www.christchurchmanchester.com. On Saturday 17th of November, David Devonish taught two sessions at the Christchurch Manchester School of Theology. This is the first of those sessions, where David took us through the exile books of the Bible. David is one of the senior leaders in the New Frontiers network of churches. Let's take a listen to the session. Okay, well, good to be here. Um, So what I'm going to do, the exile literature... So in your notes, you should have a a map and then a little bit of history, which actually starts well, well before the the exile, but just gives the background to it. Um, The exile was very important for a number of reasons. Firstly, it actually finally dealt with idolatry amongst the Jewish people. Every time they'd had a bit of a revival, they went back into idolatry. Actually, whatever else you might say, and the fact that they didn't receive most of them Jesus when he came, whatever else might be a problem, they didn't go back to idolatry and haven't gone back to idolatry. And so the exile actually did what all the exhortations, all the prophets, all the... um, times when they had other problems because of their, um, and being defeated by enemies and all the rest of it because of their idolatry. The exile actually completely dealt with that issue amongst them. Um, It also is important in the Jewish history because uh, those that actually came back to the land of Israel were a small, small minority of the Jews who were in exile. We'll look at that a little bit later when we look at uh, the book of Esther. I hope we get there, because that was quite a lot later, but she was still one of those in exile and was concerned about the majority of the Jewish people who were still in exile. Um, So often when we get uh, teaching on, yeah, They all returned and all that sort of thing. They didn't. Most didn't. And many got assimilated into uh, the nations around, yet sufficient uh, retained their Jewish identity in order for the preservation of the people of Israel so that the Messiah could come from Israel, which was something very important. Okay. So... The map at the beginning shows the various famous areas of this time. And I'm just going to um, focus on one or two of them. Obviously, Egypt was where they got delivered from, but remained a power throughout their history. Uh, Then you've got Judah and Israel, because I'm sure you're aware, because I'm sure you've been taught this in what leads up to this, that after the death of Solomon... Uh, the people of God never more, never anymore, 
acted as one nation. Sometimes Judah and Israel allied themselves against common enemies, but they were always two different nations. By the way, I'm quite happy to take questions at any point. If I feel your questions are so uh, coming so thick and fast that I can't get through any material at all, I'll just say, well, let's pause for a moment. But feel free to interrupt me, OK? So, so you've got Egypt, then you've got Judah and Israel, which if you... If you look at that map carefully, when you take the other two major empires, Babylonian and Assyria, and Egypt, which was always their rival, what do you notice? They're right in the middle, so they, are, they get caught up in international conflicts, um, whether they want to or not. So early on in their history, the enemy was more from Syria, um, then later it was from the big power was Assyria Assyria had its capital Nineveh and uh, that's where Jonah got sent to Jonah got sent to the capital of their main enemies which was why it was such a problem to him and uh, the Assyrians were the one eventually as you'll see from the chart that, that comes below took the northern part, that's Israel, the ten tribes in the north, took them captivity into Assyria. Okay, now, Assyrians are not a very big empire now. In fact, they haven't got their own country, but there are still Assyrians around. I went to an Assyrian village once. Um, they still speak Aramaic, the language Jesus spoke when he was here. This is just this has nothing to do with the exile, but it's just interesting stuff, okay? Uh, so <coughs> they still speak Aramaic, uh, the language Jesus spoke, and of course Aramaic came because the, it, the, they stopped speaking Hebrew in their ordinary language. They started speaking Aramaic. Of course, that was a result of the Assyrian influence of a related language. Um, and... I went, to a little, I went to a school in this Assyrian village where a um, young girl, about eight years old, recited the Lord's Prayer in the very language that Jesus would have said it. Not that that meant a lot more to me. Okay. <laughs> so the Assyrians are still around, but they're uh, absorbed in other nations. At the moment, it was in Armenia that I went to an Assyrian village, but they're elsewhere as well. In Eastern, I've been to, I've visited them in Eastern Turkey as well. So uh, then you had the Babylonians, um, who were the em the empire that came to after the Assyrian Empire fell. There was a conflict between Babylonia and Egypt as to who would be top nation, and the Babylonians then took, as we'll see, the people from. Uh, the land of Judah into exile. And that's where most of the exile literature comes from. We don't know much about what happened to the people under the Assyrian Empire. After the Babylonian Empire, you got the empire of the Medes and Persians. Media obviously comes from... Uh, Medes obviously come from Medea. Elam was the name at that time given to the Persian Empire. So they are the... 
they are the Persians who took over from the Babylonians. Um, and, uh, and then it was under the Persian king that the people came back, the few that did, um, into the land of Israel. Okay, the Medes. Any idea who they are today? No? Okay, they are the Kurdish people. Okay, because they... This is just... I'm trying to get you to relate to it today as well, you know, come on. Because you're all massively keen on all the ethnic groups all around the world, aren't you? Because we've got to reach them all with the gospel, so you must be. Uh, So the Kurds, which is probably the biggest people group that don't have their own land. Uh, they are the descendants of the Medes and their, their language, Kurdish, is still very much related to what's the modern language for Persia, which is Iran, and language Farsi. Okay, so the Medes and Persians, uh, again, still pretty important in terms of world history today. Okay, so... This chart, which I just gave you for the background, I'm not going to go through the chart in any detail, but you get uh, the the dates, the key events, you've got key threat to Israel, Aram or Syria, it's the same people, Assyria, then Babylon and Egypt. Uh, And the Assyrians deported Israel, reported in 2 Kings chapter 17. And what the, what the Assyrians did, this was a clever policy really for um, maintaining your dominance, but very painful to everybody who was dominated by you. Basically they took all the people they conquered, they took them from their own land and distributed them in other lands and then brought people from the other lands and put them with you. So Israel then got populated by other ethnic groups who were conquered by the Assyrians, who later became the, you know? Samaritans, Samaritans. brilliant, okay. So, uh, so that's how that came, came about. And so that's how many of them lost their identity because they were distributed across the Assyrian Empire. Interestingly, that's also what the Soviet Union did. So Stalin in particular um, would take the various ethnic groups. It's why there's still so many problems with different ethnic groups in that part of the world. He would take them all and dump them somewhere else. So the Crimean Tatars, you've heard of them, have you? Okay, you've heard the Crimea. Well, there's a minority Muslim people group in the Crimea called the Tatars. In one night, Stalin took the whole population of several hundred thousand in trains and dumped them in the middle of Kazakhstan. So, and we're still, but praise God, we've seen three or four churches planted now amongst the Crimean Tatars. But I won't get into that story because I'd, I'd much, in some respects I'd much rather because it's fantastic through a resurrection and all that sort of stuff. That's actually amazing stories, but I haven't got time for it. Okay. <laughs> And it's not relevant to the wisdom, to the, it's not relevant to the uh, exile literature or even the exilic literature. Okay, so, uh, so that's, so Assyria then, Assyria then took, tried to attack Jerusalem 
and laid siege to it, and you get this amazing story that's both uh, in Kings and Isaiah, where uh, they, uh, through an absolute miracle, um, the Jews were not conquered by the Assyrians, Jerusalem was not taken by the Assyrians through a miraculous intervention of God, but because despite that miraculous intervention, they didn't carry on following God, Eventually, the Babylonians did get them. Okay. Is that all right? Or did you know all that already? <laughs> okay, so that chart, um, although I'm not going into it in any more detail, gives you all the history of those nations. All right, so some of the people who, who uh, were involved in the Literature of the exile, firstly Ezekiel. Ezekiel was a trainee priest. And the previous king of Israel, uh, a young boy called Josiah, and you may have touched this already, had had found the law of God which had been lost for generations in the temple somewhere. It wasn't lost, yeah, it was lost in the temple, but they found it in the temple when they did some restoration work. They found, wow, we found the law again. Imagine, you know, they lost the scriptures for several, for several decades. Uh, and it is thought by commentators that in the year that Josiah found those scriptures, Ezekiel was born. His name means may God strengthen him and he was born to a priestly family in what's thought to be 622 BC. This fairly, it may be out a year or two, don't worry about that. Um, And by the way, when Josiah actually, when he found the law of God, even though he was very young, he reformed everything in Israel. So he looked outwardly as if everything was great. But actually, people's hearts didn't change. So as soon as he'd gone, he got, he got killed in battle when foolishly got involved in one of these battles between the Egyptians and the Babylonians. And so he uh, got killed in battle, which meant that there, thereafter, despite his revival, uh, the, the, the nation was not changed by it. Okay, many of the people especially leaders, especially young leaders, were taken into Babylon. And Ezekiel went there, age 25. And living in exile, he became a prophet. Um, And we'll look at some of his prophecies in a moment. Um, He had amazing visions of God and also effectively had the first spiritual internet because he was able to tell the people in the land of, who were in Babylon in exile exactly what was happening in Israel uh, a thousand kilometres away while it was happening. So he saw the siege, he saw the uh, uh, glory depart from the temple, the temple destroyed. He told them all that was happening during that time. Okay, so he became a, a prophet Um, He then had a massive vision at the end of his book about God restoring his people. But uh, when he describes the restored land and the restored city of God and the restored temple, it must be symbolic 
because the city was shaped like a cube. Does that ring any bells for you? Anyone knows their Bible? New Jerusalem in the book of Revelation, yes. And so when Ezekiel was, taught, was prophesying about the restoration of Jerusalem, he wasn't having in mind the, um, just the people coming back to a physical Jerusalem. It was far bigger than that, although he probably didn't fully understand it, because uh, it actually is not fulfilled until much, much later. Okay. And Ezekiel lived among the exiles in houses made with baked mug bricks. They were not in a prison camp, allowed a lot of freedom. He was obviously respected and consulted by the elders who still functioned in exile, though the priesthood didn't. Okay. So he also had to act out a lot of his prophecies. If you want to biblical foundation for dramatic acting out of prophecies then Ezekiel did that all the time but it wasn't much fun what he did so don't push it too far so for example because he's living in these he's living near the brickworks um, by the river Chebar in, in exile in Babylon when he when he was telling the people what was going on in Jerusalem at the same time like I just referred to knowing exactly what was happening he actually had to model the siege of Jerusalem. And so he built, um, had to build bricks that represented Jerusalem. And then he had to lie on one side for goodness knows how long. And then on the other side, he had to eat very little because that's what they were doing. In, in, they were starving in Jerusalem. So he had to starve in, in Babylon. He could only, he had to cook his food over dung. And so it was... God spared him because he said you have to use your own dung and then he protested and God gave him and said, oh, no, you can use animal dung, it's a lot more healthy. Uh, so, the, but, so that's Ezekiel. He uh, had to act out a lot of his prophecies. Another time he had to cut all his hair off and, and then go slashing it with swords and show only a small proportion of those that had gone into exile would actually return. He had to actually be dumb for a while um, because God wasn't speaking. His wife died at precisely the same time that Jerusalem was destroyed, but he was not permitted to outwardly mourn her because God was saying people would be mourning the death of the fall of Jerusalem, but they shouldn't do that because actually that was what God had intended because of their idolatry. Okay, so Ezekiel's was an interesting guy, isn't it, don't you think? Also, and I'll go into this in a little bit more detail, but you can read it through in your notes. The vision of Ezekiel 1 is probably the most epic and dramatic theophany, that's appearance of God in the Bible. If you want to just meditate on God for a while, the beginning of Ezekiel is probably one of the best places to go. Okay, he has this incredible vision. But the vision was important, and it's important for what we're going to teach about the exile literature, because... He said, I was amongst the exiles by the river Chebar, and I saw God. Now that, came, that would have been a shock. Why? Because they still thought, really, God was in Jerusalem, but God's in Babylon. That's ever so important when we come to apply this to our lives today. 
because we're living in a in post-Christendom we're going to nations where there's no knowledge of God but God is there and so actually the best Old Testament descriptions of the presence of God came not in Jerusalem but in Babylon and so there was a windstorm coming from the north, a huge cloud with brightness all around it. Fly, fire was flashing from within the cloud and gleaming metal in the midst of it. From the middle came four living creatures, human-like with four wings. They had four faces. And it was the face of a man or a human, ruler of the creation on God's behalf. A lion, king of the wild animals. An ox, strongest of the domestic animals and an eagle, most powerful of the birds. So it's, it's that picture of God, in a, God being reflected in what he's made, but with the best of what he's made. The wings touch each other, forming an outward-looking square. Collectively, they resemble fire with torches moving between them, a fire in the middle, and lightning flashing out from them. Have you ever read Ezekiel? Okay, so this is all familiar. Every day, okay. Each living creature had a wheel within a wheel. Now, we use the expression today, wheels within wheels, to describe all sorts of strange manipulation and all that sort of thing. Absolutely nothing to do with that at all. The expression that we use in English comes from Ezekiel, but it's absolutely nothing to do with Ezekiel. What Ezekiel meant, the wheels within wheels, was so that God could move everywhere. It was actually a sign of his omnipresence that he could go fast in any direction, and, you know, which is actually, uh, it's not that he actually does move, but that's how it seems, because God is on the move. We sometimes say that, don't we? God is moving. And that's what the wheels within wheels actually represent. Yeah? Yes, he also, so exactly, he's not only everywhere, he's all-seeing as well. So he knows everything, he is everywhere. All these things come out symbolically in, those, in that vision. Thanks for interrupting, by the way. I you know, hope that enables everybody else to feel just as free to do so. Over, over the heads of the living creature... Creatures is a gigantic crystal expanse which Carson described as like an upside down crystal walk. Okay, if you could imagine that, but massive. When their wings move, it sounds like the mighty tumult of an army. When the voice above them is heard, when God actually speaks, they let down their wings and fall silent. Above the expanse is a throne like sapphire. Seated on the throne is one with a human appearance, gleaming metal from the waist up and fire from the waist down. And it says, such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of Yahweh. That's very important because it doesn't say this is Yahweh. You can't see Yahweh, but you can see something that's an appearance of the likeness of the glory of Yahweh. 
and someone gave, I found this somewhere, translation. It kind of looked a tiny bit like something that was ever so slightly like this, but that doesn't even get close to describing God. Okay. I just wanted to spend a bit more time on Ezekiel's vision because firstly it's important because he saw the glory of God in Babylon and secondly it's important because it magnifies who God is. Okay, how are we doing? Gosh. Okay, um, I just want to... I'll miss some bits out from my notes, but I just want to do some... There's two other very important visions in Ezekiel I just want to touch on because they're important for us today. Firstly, Ezekiel chapter 37, the Valley of Dry Bones. And we haven't got time to read it, do read it sometime. But first of all, it says the hand of the stage one, the hand of God was on Ezekiel. Stage one was God is moving and God is upon us. Because remember, he went into a valley full of dry bones, which, which shows that everything is devastate, devastated. There's hardly any life. As I go to places where there aren't any believers, it's like a valley of dry bones. Post-Christendom Britain is increasingly like a valley of dry bones. So if that's the case, then you need to find what God is doing, and Ezekiel's vision helps us with that. So first, despite everything, God is still there. The hand of the Lord came upon Ezekiel. Stage two, he was told to look at the bones... And there was a clear sense of the hopelessness of the situation. Stage two is realising the hopelessness of the situation. Ezekiel saw the bones very dry and very disconnected. That's true of many parts of the world today. Stage three, because God said to him, can these bones live? And Ezekiel didn't say no. There was just a tiny, tiny bit of faith. He just said, Lord, you know. That's better than saying, no, they can't live. It's just a tiny bit of faith, which is what God then used. Stage four, he was told to prophesy to the bones. That required growing faith as he spoke out God's word. And the result of that was partial fulfilment. There was still no breath, only a rattling noise as all the skeletons came together, which must have been quite a vivid, vivid, vivid vision, really. Stage five, he was then said, prophesy to the wind. That was prophetic praying. God calls us in the time in which we're living to speak and to pray. When prophetic praying happened, the spirit moved and life came into them. And stage six, a vast army that... Uh, God raised out of hopelessness. So I like to preach Ezekiel 37 sometimes. Forgive me, I'm doing a Bible study with you, but just a little bit of preaching. I like to preach Ezekiel 37 because it shows the stages that we need today. And the other important vision of Ezekiel was chapter 47, the river of God. That was when Ezekiel had seen these amazing visions of the... um, city like a cube then he walked from the temple and he the water came out just like a trickle that's the word used it's it's the word i haven't got a water bottle here 
Um, but if you imagine a water... Ah, that's it. Thank you. Okay. How's it come out? It's open. It's open. Okay, great. <laughs> and so he saw this from the altar just coming. And it's the word used for when a bottle was laid on its side and a tiny bit came out. Just a trickle. And then he walked 450 yards and suddenly it had grown. It was up to his ankles. Thank you. And he started to trickle up to his ankles. Then 450 yards further up to his knees. 450 yards further up to his waist. 450 yards further and it was waters to swim in. And he then was shown trees growing along the bank of the river. He was showing, he was shown that the Dead Sea became full of life, full of, sea, full of uh, fish like the Mediterranean Sea. And I often preach on that as well because, what? What's it teaching? The further you got away from the temple, the deeper the presence of God. Wow. The deeper the river. So, you want to really experience God. Mission to the dead areas is where you experience it. So I love preaching that, because that's the sort of things I'm... But it's true. It was, and... and uh, it, it fulfilled what scripture says elsewhere. In the very first temples, the Garden of Eden, as I'm sure you had when you looked at that, and from the riv- temple, rivers flowed out to bless the world. Jesus said, come to me and drink, and from you, rivers of living water will go out. And the holy city in the end was rivers and trees for the healing of the nations. So this is a massive prophetic picture of how God moves. Okay, the further we go in mission from the temple, the deeper the river. Okay, that's Ezekiel. We probably spent more on him than I should have done, but I like Ezekiel. In fact, the first time I ever preached in a church, I preached from the book of Ezekiel. I know that sounds stupid, I was about 17 at the time. So, <coughs> then Daniel, like Ezekiel, Daniel and his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, were taken to Babylon in the first batch of exiles. They were the young, bright, potential leaders. However, unlike Ezekiel, who was left amongst the captives, they were taken into the Babylonian, the Babylonian university equivalent to study. Again, that was a great strategy for Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. Take the brightest potential leaders, change their names, that's their identity, train them in the best of Babylonian culture and education, promote them into government. Because if you want to really get people absorbed into your culture, that's what you do. Nebuchadnezzar understood that. Didn't quite work with these three, but that was his general strategy. It's a good strategy. If you want to get people totally absorbed into what you are. So, and the purpose of the book of Daniel was to prepare God's people to live under predominantly pagan, or as we would say today, secular governments, which are often antagonistic to their faith. 
And in the Old Testament up until then, they'd had their own land since escaping from Egypt a thousand years before. But from this time on, they would live under pagan governments. Even when a few of them got back to their own land, and remember it was a few, the Bible calls it a remnant, when a few got back to their own land, they were still under foreign governments, except for a very, very, very short time under the Maccabeans. So, they... But from this time on, they would have to learn how to live under pagan governments, often cruel empires, and had to learn how to adapt and work in that environment whilst remaining true to the faith, and indeed influencing those governments with their faith when they could. That's exactly the position of the Christian church in most of the world for most of history. Okay, there's been times in Western history where the church was actually sharing in government, and to be honest, they were not the brightest times of the church. Okay. You know, when the Pope could raise an army and all that sort of stuff was not actually a tremendous blessing for the expansion of the true gospel. But actually where the church has prospered in real spiritual terms as opposed to political terms is where they're like they were in Daniel. Okay, still true today. Where the, where the church becomes too much identified with the government, in the end that spells its own corruption. And we're seeing that in some parts of the world today as well. And the church becomes identified with a political, particular political party or something like that. Whereas actually the church's role is to be like Daniel, influence which Daniel did, but not identify, identification with. Do you get that difference? And you learn that from the exile literature. So it's pretty important, isn't it, this session? Exile literature. When I was preparing, I wasn't quite so glad that um, Andy had asked me to do this one. But once I'd prepared, I felt, yes, okay. <laughs> this is great. So, and in Daniel chapter 3, King Nebuchadnezzar wanted to unite his empire, which consisted of many races, languages and faiths. And Nebuchadnezzar was probably a bit insecure because of some of the dreams he'd had. So he decided on building a massive gold statue, which is like a little plinth really, uh, on a plinth, 90 foot tall, a foot wide. And then ordered all who worked for the government from those different ethnic groups, whenever they heard the orchestra play, they were to bow down and worship this massive statue. Such statues were often known in the ancient world to glorify some monarch, as they still are today. Emperors of the ancient world and tyrannical governments today expect people to unite around some image of them and the state takes precedence over any faith. And that's the case in many parts of the world still. Yeah. Generally speaking, the church has been a suffering church. Like Daniel. I'm working now in many places where the church is suffering. Go to China a lot. Churches in East Ukraine now got another massive... Just started, just a few weeks ago. A few months ago. Massive new persecution. It's generally what's occurred. 
and they'll try and... In the Soviet Union, there's a story of Stalin who came across an old lady who had still retained her faith who was kissing the feet of a statue of Jesus. And... Uh, no, it wasn't, St- yeah, it wasn't Stalin himself. It was one of his leading officials. Saw this old lady and she, he said to her, Babushka, that's grandma, Babushka, will you also kiss the feet of comrade Stalin? She replied, certainly, if you crucify him first. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. Because this, with this demand... And, and so God delivered these people from the fiery furnace, which they were thrown into because they wouldn't bow down, but they actually said this amazing thing. Our God is able to save us, but even if he doesn't, we will not worship your image. Very powerful. Which a lot of our brothers and sisters in much of the world are having to do that right now. As a whole, the story relates how the men are put on the spot, denounced, interrogated, executed, delivered and promoted. The arrogant king is humbled. The faithful Jews are exalted. So what do we learn from Daniel? Well, first lesson, learn where you can compromise and where you mustn't. Because to live in a secular world, don't shoot me, you have to compromise. Church has to compromise. But learn where you can compromise and where you mustn't. These guys chose their battles. They studied all the occult arts and ungodly practices of the Babylonians in their university. They didn't stand against that. They didn't say, no, no, we're not going to study. They studied all that. They worked for that oppressive government. We may not agree with everything we learn or every decision we have to take, but it's unavoidable. You can't stand out over everything. Social workers and school teachers may have to be involved in either placing children or teaching children stuff they'd perhaps rather not teach or place them in situations where they would not rather not place them. But they have to do it. But... There were certain things that they refused to compromise on. Now, the, Daniel and his mates refused to compromise on the food laws. You might say, well, that doesn't really matter. It doesn't really matter if you... I mean, after all, <laughs> only a few hundred years later when Jesus came, all those food laws were abolished. So why stand out on that? It was because the food laws were kept, what kept Israel as a separate nation which was necessary in the purposes of God because the Christ was coming from Israel. So they had to retain their identity. And so this is an issue of identity. It's not an issue of food laws because you say you need now eat everything you like. I tasted some amazing maggots in China recently. Okay. So you, it's not, you need anything. Is it worth pointing out that the issue with or lack of issue with them studying the occult stuff yeah. is they never then put it into practice. They didn't know they they didn't put it into practice, no, in the sense that they didn't get into the occultism, but they still would have been thoroughly immersed in Babylonian culture. 
is a difference. But I guess, do you think that if there had then been a point where they were then told, and now practice it, now use it? Well, they, they would have distinguished what they practiced. Okay, so a lot of the philosophy and practices of government they would have implemented. And they, and they studied the rest. But they, um, they were very much on the borderline, except they got things from God. So when it came to interpretation of dreams, Daniel did much better than the occult people. But he still interpreted the dreams, he just got it from God. So, but to people around, they probably would have hardly picked up that distinction. And then in the chapter we read, they refused to give glory to God, government that could only be given to God. And to be honest, I find Christians compromising on that. particularly in the US at the moment. Okay. So, how do we react under great pressure, is what's taught in Daniel. Pressure from authority. Is an evil spirit at work. You see, the Bible looks at a, a government in two ways. On the one hand, it says the government is appointed by God and therefore you obey them on things and you pay your taxes and all that sort of thing, so I'm sure you do. But it also sees, and different books of the Bible take a different stance, but both are true. So Romans, in the New Testament, Romans says you obey the authorities. The book of Revelation says they are demonic powers. And both are true. And it's hard to get right. Uh, and sometimes believers get deceived... So many evangelicals supported the rise of Hitler. Most evangelicals who were white supported apartheid in South Africa. And most evangelicals who were white endorsed slavery for many years in America. I have to think about this. So actually... What the exile literature teaches us is we've got to know where we compromise and where we don't. Because we don't compromise on those essential things. Do you follow me? Now, I'm not going to be able to answer all those questions in a, this short session when I've got loads of other literature to get through. So pressure from conformity. Everyone else was bowing down. All the languages would unite. And pressure from intimidation. I don't know what I'll do faced with death. person I was working with, and I'll be seeing again in three leaders from a particular country, who all got six-figure prices on their heads from a terrorist group in that country. Okay? They're still planting churches there, but they have to be very careful. Daniel also... gives us an introduction to apocalyptic literature. I'll start that with peanuts. 
Okay. Because this is the approach often to apocalyptic literature. The way I see it, the cow jumped over the moon indicates a rise in farm prices. The part about the dish running away with the spoon must refer to the consumer. Do you agree with me, Charlie Brown? I can't say. I don't pretend to be a student of prophetic literature. Okay. And tragically, much Christian approach to apocalyptic prophetic literature is a bit like that. The ten horns represent, instead of seeing the overall message, which is expressed through all these symbolisms, without you having to work out the detail of what each symbol means. And that's the right approach. Or rather, Charlie Brown is giving the right answer, in the sense. I'm not going to say what exactly everything represents. The Bible has various forms of literature. Apocalyptic, and the last few chapters of Daniel um, deal with are all apocalyptic. What other books are apocalyptic? Revelation, yeah. Any others? Well, bits of other books. Even Jesus' end times teaching about the, you know, the moon turning to blood and the, there'll be wars and rumours of wars and the stars will come down from the sky and all this sort of stuff. That's apocalyptic literature, which has to be understood in its own form. And it uses cosmic or otherworldly language to describe this worldly realities or spiritual significance. E.g. the sun's dark and the stars falling refer not to the collapse of the space-time world, but to the startling and cosmically significant events such as the fall of great empires. Okay. Right, I'm supposed to... Can I just finish Daniel chapter... Can I just finish Daniel? Is that all right? Before your coffee break? Okay, so Daniel chapter 7, which is where the apocalyptic literature starts. In our own church, we did a whole series of preaching on Daniel. And people were very happy to do the first six chapters. And then they said, right, Dave, we won't do the first, the last 7 to 12 on a Sunday morning, because no one will understand it. Will you do a special seminar? So I had to do a Sunday evening two hours on <laughs> seven, to tw- 7 to 12 of Daniel. So what I'm going to do is condense that to two minutes, okay? But basically, it's, it's the, all these huge visions of Daniel. Now, one of Daniel chapter 7 is particularly important because it's one of the scriptures most frequently quoted by Jesus about the Son of Man appearing before God. You know that? Jesus talks about it all the time. And that first section deals with foul-looking beasts coming from the sea, the sea representing chaos and disorder to the Hebrew mind, the beasts become increasingly more grotesque and ferocious, and they represent the demonic and cruel exploitation aspect of human government and authority. Okay. Refers probably to the four empires in those days, but it's vague enough to apply symbolically to all abuse of authority in human government, including our own. 
Jesus has called himself the Son of Man. The Son of Man appeared. The Son of Man appearing before God doesn't mean he's appearing when he returns. It is appearing when he has conquered sin and Satan and ascended to the right hand of God. And the Messiah is given authority over the whole nations. And the, the rest of it is, again, it's got all these visions of these horrible beasts and spirits over nations. Now, I believe there are spirits over ethnic groups. I believe that as people give themselves to evil, demonic forces then start moving in and controlling. I don't believe that you shout at them to get rid of them. I believe that you set people free from them until they're overcome. But they are there, and Daniel talks about it. Daniel also makes it clear, because he, he started praying, because he read in the book of Jeremiah, 70 years and the people will go back. And so he started praying, and for the 70 years, because it was 70 years was up. But actually, God said to him, no, no, not 70, 70 times 7 years. 490 before the captivity would end. I thought, sorry, I thought they did go back after 70 years. No, a tiny remnant went back. The captivity didn't end until the kingdom came to be established by Jesus to lead people out of the real captivity. And the end of it was demonstrated in the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70. Okay? Because now, when Jesus came, freedom was announced and was received by some. The captivity didn't end until then. They're always ruled by other powers until then. Most of them were not in their own land. And then Jesus transformed that and said, yes, not only are you not in your own land, but the gospel's going to go to every land. The freedom from the captivity will come to every ethnic group. And Daniel is the first one to introduce that. In the, and so uh, I'll give a quote here. In the meantime, the Israelites, so 490 years, in the meantime, the Israelites were to live out their faith in a Gentile world under circumstances that would make it more and more difficult to do so. They had to count on the sovereignty of God to sustain them generation by generation, crisis by crisis. They also had to trust the power of God to control the flow of world empires as they rose and fell. God's agenda is never in jeopardy. Nevertheless, they were, had to be prepared for the long term. So does the church today. Even Christ's people today are not exactly thrilled over that word. We tend to prefer a quick-fix approach rather than the long view of discipleship. Not only Daniel 8, but Jesus himself has taught us better. He said, we'll hear of wars and rumours of wars. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. But these are not the signs of the end. They're still quoted as the signs of the end. Jesus said, but this is not the signs of the end, and yet many Christian books say these are the signs of the end. I don't get it. They are simply the way things will be in the present age, and it is in and through these bumps and jumps and lumps of history that we are to prove fruitful and faithful, I would say. Let's have a coffee break. Let's look now at Jeremiah. Jeremiah actually never went into captivity himself, but he prophesied to those who were in captivity and actually wrote a letter to them and prophesied to those who remained in Jerusalem and Israel, or sorry, in Judah, when the captivity had taken place. Jeremiah 
except for the Psalms, is the longest book in the Bible. Glad you knew that. And Jeremiah stood out among the citizens of that uncertain world as a man of vision, where most people saw only turmoil and uncertainty. He perceived the hand of God at work in the crises of his world and delivered a message that addressed both his own age and subsequent generations. Okay, so that's Jeremiah. God spoke to him and he, he was so unpopular with his prophetic message because basically everybody else was saying, it's all right, God will set us free, God will deliver us from Babylonians. <laughs> Jeremiah said, the best thing you can do is surrender. A completely unpopular message to a nationalistic people. Many were taken into captivity. Jeremiah wrote to them later. What he prophesied happened, but he was thrown into prison and his writings burned and had to be all rewritten again. There was hope in his message about the 70 years. He eventually, aged about 70, he was taken off by some people fleeing into the land of Egypt. There he eventually died. So, Jeremiah was countercultural and unpopular, suffered most of his life for his message. His village and his family were against him. He had internal agonies of soul. He says, can't I preach something else? <laughs> Though he was right and faithful to God, he ended his life as a 70-year-old exile, but prophesied with amazing insights. Sometimes we have to redefine success. Jeremiah had an, was a successful prophet, but no one would have known it. Interestingly, Jesus, people compared Jesus to Jeremiah. It says, Matthew 16, 13 to 16, when Jesus came to the regions of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. Why do you think they picked out Jeremiah for Jesus? Why do people think, you're like Jeremiah? Why not Daniel or Isaiah or Zechariah? Who wants to be a Jeremiah? We even use that expression. Maybe you don't nowadays, but when I was growing up, we used to say, use that expression, oh, he's a bit of a Jeremiah, always looking on the miserable side of things. <laughs> but Jesus stood against prevailing opinion on the same issues. Israel were faced with an occupying power and expected the Messiah to overthrow it. Jesus said, love your enemies carry the burdens that the soldiers ask to put on you for two miles when they just ask you to do it for one. The temple, Jeremiah said, the temple's going to fall. Jesus said, the temple's going to fall. Jeremiah prophesied a new covenant. Jesus brought in the new covenant. Jesus wept over Jerusalem. He was a man of sorrows like Jeremiah. But unlike Jeremiah, Jesus forgave his enemies. Jeremiah cursed them. <laughs> okay. But Jeremiah brought a countercultural message that nobody else was saying. The one that's quoted now so much, Jeremiah 29, says this When you go to Babylon, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon build houses and settle down. 
plant gardens and eat what they produce. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Now, that was a crazy, that message had never been heard before. We're fairly familiar with it now, because most people that teach on culture and how we relate to the culture around us quote Jeremiah 29. But, yeah, just settle down in this world. Build your houses and pray for the prosperity of where you are. Relate to it. Jeremiah's radical message was a new way of working for the kingdom. Up until that time, as I said before, Israel had been a nation where God's rule could be directly implied. Now it's all changed. They have to live out the kingdom in a culturally hostile environment. What are they to do? Live their lives, engage with the culture, but be different and bless the nations. That actually was the original call on the people of Israel. I will bless you, Abraham, and through your descendants, the whole world will be blessed. We take a message of blessing to the world. Our attitude is that. So, Tim Keller put it this way, commenting on Jeremiah 29. We must not form a subculture in which we externally dress and talk differently, avoid certain gross behaviours, but internally we have the same values as the surrounding culture. So believers may not smoke or drink too much or have sex outside of marriage, yet in their core beings they may be as materialistic, as individualistic and status or image conscious as the society around. Do you think that's true? Rather, we should form a counterculture. This is the reverse of a subculture. We're to be externally quite like the surrounding culture, positive towards and conversant with it, without jargon and other Christian trappings, yet in worldview, values and lifestyle, demonstrate chastity, simplicity, humility and self-sacrifice. Jeremiah was a proponent of counterculture in Jeremiah chapter 29. Okay? Can I just say... Uh, I was brought up in the most legalistic denomination that can be imagined. Okay. We weren't allowed to have anything to do with the world. Couldn't watch TV, couldn't go to the cinema, couldn't listen to recorded music, couldn't have a meal with anybody who wasn't part of our church. So I grew up in the most legalistic... Yeah, actually, in... Biblical terms, they were some of the most worldly people I've ever been with. And there was more sin in that church than in any church I've been in since where grace is preached. Many Christians, sadly, in many parts of the world, try and be different externally from their culture, but internally adopt the same values. Their external sins will be different. But their internal, looking for prestige, the way they live, just as, material, just as individualistic, 
as the culture they're part of. Jeremiah turned that on his head and said, be like them, but different inwardly. It's gone a bit quiet in here. Do you get what I'm saying? Then Esther. Esther is a superb book. Any of you read Esther? Okay. Superb book. Brilliant story. God's never mentioned in the book. (laughs) But it's a fantastic story and gives the reasons for the Jewish feast of Purim, still celebrated by the Jewish people all over the world today. It's also a joke story. It's a funny story. Even though recording serious and dangerous events, it's full of surprises and even jokes. A moment in history of the great Persian Empire, because that's later, remember the Persians took over from the Babylonians? Yet full of humorous exaggerations, feasts that last six months, gallows as high as a six-storey building. Even the names of the people mentioned are all joke names. It's demonstrating the achieving of God's purpose, the rescue of the Jews, but pokes fun at the foolishness of proud rulers and their stupidity in making decisions. I don't know what would be the equivalent today, Blackadder, (laughs) or horrible histories. (laughs) But (laughs) Exeter is like full of irony and humour. Humour takes the edge off horror and makes it possible to read a story we would not otherwise be able to read. I've been, when I've been with, I was meeting with the leaders of our churches in in the um, war zone of Ukraine. So, but I met with them recently and they were talking about the things they're now going through in terms of persecution. And every five or ten minutes was massive jokes. They were roaring with laughter all the time. Book of Esther's like that. And that's what oppressed people sometimes have to do. King Xerxes, who it's about, was the ruler over the Persian Empire, a great figure in world history. I remember learning about Xerxes at school. But the Hebrew Bible calls him Ahasuerus. The nearest English equivalent would be King Headache. Okay. He throws a banquet for six months. The only rule was there's no restrictions on how much you can drink. Men only together as a culture. Queen Vashti, his, his wife, was having a separate party for the women. And after the seven days, Xerxes called his queen to parade her beauty in front of all these drunken men. Can you imagine it? We read it quickly, we don't get it. Vashti refused, and so dishonoured and shamed King Headache. In honour by societies, which the Eastern cultures are, shaming constitutes a grave offence, which regularly produces the most extreme responses, as it did. And one of the nobles said, if that's allowed, it will become known throughout the empire from India to Sudan, which shows the extent of the empire, by the way, and no woman will respect their husbands. So make a new law that Vashti will no longer be queen. So they searched for a new queen. And then, I mean, it's horrible what they did. 
collect together all the most beautiful virgins you can find for the king's harem. This is a story. One of these may please the king. Could he try each one? And so become queen. Now, pleasing the king didn't mean by their intellectual brilliance. Okay, this is the, the Bible is very honest about the corruption of human life. One of the beautiful virgins was a Jewish orphan girl called Esther, who lived under the care of her cousin Mordecai. She's taken into the harem and prepared for a year to go to the king. Now, this is morally pretty dubious, isn't it, really? Raises lots of questions. Why didn't Mordecai hide her? It's the reason for, for centuries ago, many uh, Jewish and Christian commentators didn't really think this book should be in the Bible. But in a totalitarian government, people have to submit to awful things and terrible abuse. Esther was shown favour. Esther was also told by Mordecai, don't say you're a Jew. That was compromising more than Daniel did. But she pleased the king and became queen. Five years later, a guy called Haman who was a traditional enemy of the Jews, because he was an Agagite, and the Agagites always opposed, opposed the Jews, <coughs> manipulated, sorry, manipulated the king, yeah, to pass a law on a date chosen by Pua, which is Lot, that all Jews should be destroyed. Horrified, Mordecai put on sackcloth, and key statement for him, and he said to Esther 4.14, he said, if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, But you, because he knew he had faith, but you and your family's fa father's family will perish. Who knows, but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this, or more familiar translation, you've come to the kingdom for such a time as this. And Esther goes on forever. It's a great Eastern story, you know, he has one feast, he invites Haman, then doesn't do anything, and then has another feast and invites him, and that's how Easterners tell stories. When I'm preaching in the East, my stories are all too short, unless I really go through them. And the Bible does that. Sometimes it repeats a whole story. Have you noticed that? Well, it's just because the Bible's an Eastern book. And other bits, it just goes over quickly. And Haman, he thought he was going to be honoured, and then Mordecai was honoured, so he knew his number was up. So he went in and to the next banquet, pleaded with Esther, but he did what he shouldn't have done, and sort of knelt down at her and touched her. And that was a complete no-no, so he got hanged anyway. And that's on the, on the date that they were all going to be killed. And so the Feast of Purim 
was, and Feast of Purim always has one solemn day, because it was solemn, they, Jewish people nearly got destroyed, and then one amazing fun day, because the whole thing was such, was such, a, was such great deliverance. And Esther and Mordecai were totally immersed in the Persian culture. They didn't go back to Jerusalem. And we too, as I said earlier, may feel obliged to make compromises, not as extreme ones as Esther, spending a night with a pagan king and pleasing him enough to become his queen. But she seemed to compromise. Now, I often think, find unrealistic things taught by Christians in the West to Christians in totalitarian societies, even over things like bribery. Yeah. Yeah, there's a friend of ours who runs a school in a particular country. The school is subject to its equivalent to the Ofsted inspection. And someone phones her from the government and says... This is the amount of gift you have to pay. Oh, we mustn't do that, it's bribery. No, no, it's extortion. It's not in order to change justice and get favour. But a lot of Christians say, oh, we mustn't do that, Western Christians, mustn't do that. Well, the school will be closed down. What help that to anyone? This is extortion, not bribery. In fact, if you read the book of Proverbs, three of the references to bribery are favourable and three unfavourable. It depends on the motive. You look shocked. Come on! Get in the real world! We don't have corruption in England, do we? We just have the old school tie. Okay, so the... They also took advantage of favour. There will come times when pe people get favour. And that's the time to say, okay. And in her when she was favoured, she acted in a way that set the whole people free. The seized the moment of destiny at great personal risk. Esther submitted to all sorts of things that we'd think were dreadful. But by daring to stand up when it mattered, she accomplishes the purposes of God.